So we're continuing in our series on the Apostle Paul and his journeys, and I want to just tell you today that we have a God of the unlikely. How unlikely is it that there'd be a man named Edward Kimball? He was a simple shoe salesman. He loved Jesus, and he suddenly got a strong burden to share the gospel with a co-worker at work. And how unlikely is it that he went ahead and shared this with his, with his friend Dwight about Jesus, and the man actually believed in Jesus and got saved? And how unlikely is it that that man happened to be Dwight Moody, who was one of the greatest preachers in our nation of all time? How unlikely is it that a young woman, an ordinary young woman, would have a terrible diving accident and she would end up paralyzed from the neck down and yet end up having a worldwide ministry in which thousands of people came to Jesus? How unlikely is it that this hope-filled person, Johnny Erickson Tata, would go on to bring the good news with incredible power all from a wheelchair? How unlikely. This, how unlikely is it that a person could walk into a strange city, not knowing anyone, where they don't know anyone, anything about the good news, a city which had its own religions, its own way of life, and how unlikely is it that this person would start to talk about Jesus, and people would believe, and churches would form, and they'd thrive. How unlikely. And yet that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. This is what these travels are about. They're about the power of God to do the unlikely. We've been talking in the last few weeks about Paul's missionary journeys. You can read about them in Acts, from Acts 13 onward, and how Paul and I, my Paul, Paul Graham, got to see uh, many of the cities where uh, the Apostle Paul had visited over those years, and, and we saw all over Galatia and Asia and Macedonia that Paul was pretty much starting from scratch everywhere he went. It was nothing there. No, he went from place to place where no one had preached the gospel. He went to Perga, which is the first picture here, this big city with a big long road on either side and water going down the middle and stores on every side. And he just walked in there and started talking about Jesus, and people came to faith. He went to Pisidian Antioch, the next, that big crossroads of a city that I've showed you many times. This is the entry gate into the city. And he walked through those gates, the Silk Road to Asia, and he started talking about Jesus, preaching in the synagogues, talking to Gentiles, and people came to know Jesus. And then he went to Ephesus, this great, great city, so busy with so much commerce, big wide streets. This is a huge synagogue on the left. He preached in that big synagogue. He also went to this huge theater, the next one, where actually this is the spot where he ended up starting a riot and got kind of run out of Ephesus. If you can want to read that, that's in Acts 19. But he went into Ephesus and started preaching the gospel, and people came to know Jesus. He also went into Corinth. This Las Vegas town full of idol worship, temple prostitution up on that hill, slave markets in this, in this area here, uh, just a, a place with sailors looking for a good time, and yet he came in and he preached the gospel and people came to know Jesus. Paul went into these places cold with a simple message that had never been heard, and unbelievably, hearts were changed, churches were formed, and established and thrived. This is unlikely. This is one of the most striking things and that struck me most when we were traveling through this area, how unlikely a strategy this was, how unlikely it was that this could work. I mean, just imagine it yourself. You go into some strange place that has never heard about Jesus and you just start talking about it and people just get saved and all of a sudden a church is formed. And not only that, but then you take all those brand new believers, they're not seasoned, they're not trained up in leadership skills, anything, and you just put them in charge of that church and then go on to the next place. Can you imagine that working? Seems like a really bad strategy, honestly. But this is what God did. You'd think he could have made it easier, right? He could have, you know, once Jesus rose from the dead, then he could have put a big sign in the sky that said, hey, new way to God, Jesus, he just rose from the dead. That would have worked better, right? He could have filled up those stadiums. He could have appeared and done miracles. But instead, God used ordinary people, 
one by one by one, with small beginnings in unlikely places. And from that came the biggest religion of all time. If that's not a miracle that shows God was in it, I don't know what is. He still works like that today. He's still working in us today through unlikely people in unlikely places. I know sometimes we feel today like Christianity is struggling, you know, especially here in the Western world. Christianity still remains the largest religion in the world. A, A study in 2020 found a little less than a third of the people in the world still identify as Christians. And the number of Christians is certainly declining in Europe and certainly declining in the U.S., So that's why we see it and we feel it. But you know what? It's booming in places like Africa and South America and China. So the truth never stops, okay? Let's get that through our head. It never stops. It may wax and wane in certain places. It may grow for a season in one place and, and decline for a season in another place. But God's truth always remains and his church will always stand. We never have to worry about that. Never, No matter what it looks like around us. God does things his way and he often uses the small things. Think about during the time of the exile in the Old Testament, okay? The Jewish nation had been driven out and conquered by Babylon. And so many Jewish people got got exiled into Babylon. And then after a little while, they were able to come back into Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so they start building again, okay, under the leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel. And the rebuilt temple was nothing like the original. It was much smaller. It was much less impressive. had none of the special gold and fancy things in it because those had all been stolen out of it years ago. And in fact, some of the older folks who had seen the older temple in all its grandeur were weeping because they saw how small (laughs) this new temple was going to be. And I just love what God says about this work. In Zechariah 4.10, he says this, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. He rejoiced in that little temple to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. He was rejoicing in what God was, what was happening there, even in such a small place. See, he never promised that they would be big. He doesn't promise us that. Don't, don't wish, he says, that you're back in that time of grandeur and plenty. I rejoice in what's happening now. God loves small starts and humble, faithful beginnings and restarts. He walks alongside people who don't need to see the big answers, but are content to obey God and do the work of today. Not the work of yesterday, but the work of today. And let him bring the results that he desires. See, there's some today who like to say, I long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women and we had prayer in schools and we had the Ten Commandments on the walls and and, and the Christian values were the norm in in our society. And, you know, I think some are fighting hard to go back to this. There's whole organizations fighting this. I think this is a misplaced fight. Okay, because God never wants us to go back. He is a forward-moving God. He's always doing a new thing. For starters, the good old days weren't necessarily all that good for everybody. Okay, there was a lot of people they weren't so good for. People of color, it wasn't so good in the good old days. Okay, there was, there was segregation, there was, there was violence, there was persecution. Um, and it wasn't so good for women either, by the way. Uh, we weren't paid the same for the same work. Still aren't, I don't think, everywhere. But uh, we're getting there. Um, you know, and women couldn't weren't believed if they talked about, if they talked about abuse. So it wasn't necessarily the good old days for everyone. None of that reflects the truth and justice of true Christianity. What this shows is that we can have a nation that can have the trappings of Christianity, but not the actual faith. And what we want is the actual move of God. We want the actual move of God in people's hearts. We had someone speak here a few months ago, Aaron McCarter. 
Some of you may have been there for that. If you weren't, you should go back and listen to the message that he gave. He was so powerful. He's a vineyard pastor from Maryville Vineyard. He was featured in our Vineyard National Conference um, and spoke about this. And he called, he talked about this phenomenon, Christendom, when this culture seems to have the Christian way about it, but not, but that it's different from Christianity. Yes, Christians used to have more power and influence in our country. We used to be at the heart of culture, education. Billy Graham easily filled up stadiums. That's Christendom. But our hope is not in Christendom and filling up big stations and big effort. Our hope is in Jesus. And revival in Jesus comes one by one as Jesus touches hearts. Just as God determined. And Aaron made this statement, which I loved. He said, if your hope is in Christendom, in other words, with Christianity at the center of culture, which it clearly isn't anymore, you should be panicking. But if your hope is in Jesus, you should be bursting with anticipation. We don't need to prop up Christendom. We need an outpouring of God's spirit. We don't have to long for the good old days, people. He's right here in these good new days <laughs> that we can, we can make for him. We can be his people one by one by one. See, God never promises that the culture around us will agree with or even support our faith. And it certainly has not been true for most of the Bible story. If you go back to that smaller temple erected in Jerusalem, even though they were allowed to erect it, they were surrounded by foreign nations that worshipped every other kind of God. They were not, it was not a nation of Israel anymore. Okay? They were just trying to do what they could do in the midst of this weird culture, this weird culture that they were put in. They were always co-inhabited by foreign nations. Even Israel today is not the nation it was, was meant to be under God. Okay? It's a different thing altogether. Um, the Apostle Paul, think about him. He served all his life planting churches, building up churches, getting people saved, all the whole time in a culture that was terribly against what he was doing. Okay? They were persecuting people. They never supported. It was hostile to Christianity. He never saw the culture support his work. And today, in many ways, the U.S. has veered off of biblical values. There's no question about that. Our culture is not espousing a Christian or biblical way of doing things. But does that mean the church or the kingdom is weak or dying? No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's growing. God's kingdom work is growing. And true believers who follow him will always be able to do his work in our churches, big or small. Don't despise these beginnings. I rejoice, God says, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. He rejoices to see the work you and I are doing to, to bring the gospel to the world. And so this is what we're teach, We're learning from Paul that God's kingdom is as strong as ever. Whatever it looks like around us, even when it is unlikely, God is working. And God worked through the apostle Paul and did an unlikely work. It was so unlikely. It shouldn't have succeeded. Everything was kind of against it, and yet it still succeeded. And so let's talk about these small beginnings that ended up having a huge impact. What attitudes did Paul have in this work? These are the attitudes we need to have. So let's talk about it. Small beginnings take courage. Paul was an incredibly courageous man. Honestly, he and his companions never knew what was going to happen when they walked into a new city, right? They would come dusty and tired off the road and come into the city tired and yet go straight to the synagogue and start preaching about Jesus and how he was the Messiah that they were all waiting for. And guess what? The Jewish leaders didn't like that. They usually lost their minds over it and kicked him out of the synagogue. And then they went into the, into the center courts of the city, and they started preaching. He started preaching about the gospel to the Gentiles, to the pagans. And he started to say that this God, um, you know, is bigger than all your gods, which are really just wood and stone. And that didn't go over great either. <laughs> and so they didn't like what they heard there either. He had incredible courage. To say to them that there was one true God 
when they believed in a pantheon of gods, multiple gods that you prayed for, for all kinds of things, was just unknown. As one writer put it, as Paul went from Perga to Antioch to Ephesus to Athens to Corinth, he was essentially setting off a time bomb that would challenge the very foundation of Greek and Roman society. Paul was there gently lighting the fuse. The word was potential dynamite, and preaching it in such solitary circumstances was always an act of daunting courage. We lost power at the point in the service, so the rest of the sermon is lower quality audio because it was recorded on an iPhone. Some of the sermon is missing due to the power going out, but we pray that the rest of the sermon is a blessing to you. Maybe in your life, maybe in your home, 
spectator work? Where is he calling you to believe in spite of seemingly impossible, unworkable situations? And where is he calling you to have the three things that Paul had, courage and confidence and hope in what only Jesus can do? Yeah. Our God is the God of the unlikely. Yeah. What's unlikely? I'm unlikely. I grew up an atheist. And I was that teenager who you did not want to get in a discussion about religion with because I would just just be so obnoxious telling you how your faith and your religion is just a crutch for weak people and how it's not scientific and you must not be very smart if you believe in that. And yet how unlikely is it that I would then pick up a Bible and begin reading about Jesus and suddenly it's answering all the questions that I had expressed, even ones that I had never expressed out loud, and suddenly I came to believe. And how unlikely is it that you're preaching to me today? Our God is a God of I have a friend, Lisa, who was an unlikely believer. She was very educated, very secular, had experimented with other religions, and had no desire to come to Christ, no attraction at all to Christianity. But she had a friend, and this friend was nervous to talk to her about God. She was a Christian, but she just kept feeling like she should, so very gently and lovingly, she would now and then talk about her faith with Lisa. And Lisa, God was doing his thing in Lisa's heart, even as she was fighting it. Yeah. She didn't want it. She didn't like it. She didn't want to believe in this thing. And yet over and over again, God was pulling on her, calling her, until finally she puts it like this. She said to God, you win. You win. I give up. Yeah. And she became a believer. How unlikely is that? Yeah. Our God is the God of the unlikely. Amen. My, God, my dad was an atheist. He's unlikely. He was an atheist his whole life. He would argue with you endlessly about it, make comments all the time. He even wrote a book about his atheism. If there was one person I would say to you, he would never come to any kind of faith, it would have been my dad. And yet how unlikely is it that he started months before he died to say the Lord's Prayer? Wow. And that how then a few weeks before he died, I asked him, do you want to be with Jesus forever, Dad? And he said, oh yeah, oh yeah. Hmm. And I was able to pray with him, and that old atheist was ushered into the kingdom in the last hours of his life. Some of you are pretty unlikely. Some of you were running away from God, doing everything but, doing everything you could to be as far away. Some of you, I know, were caught up in sin and, and, and addiction. Some of you were struggling with traumas and abuses. Some of you had even Christians and churches harm you. And yet, yeah, Jesus came to you anyway. And he began to do a healing work in your heart. And he began to draw you to himself. And you were surprised by his love for you in spite of all that had gone on before. And he started to set you free. And now here you sit. Amen. Listening to me talk and to listen to the Lord speak to you and wanting to be part of him. You are unlikely. And yet God is the God of the unlikely. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I want to just say... But the God of, he's not just the God of the unlikely when it comes to our salvation either. You might think it's unlikely your marriage will ever be whole. That you'll ever get on the same page with your spouse, that you'll have a healthy marriage, that the love could be rekindled. And I want you to begin to pray for God to move in your marriage. Begin to do the work because our God is a God of the unlikely. And he can do unlikely things even in your marriage. Do you think it unlikely that your adult children will come back to faith? No, they seem too far away. They've said too many things. But I want you to know that we can begin to pray for God to show up. Amen. We can have hope in God to show up. He loves them more than you do. And yeah. he's working, even yeah. when we don't see it. Yeah. So God is a God of the unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. I 
think it's also, perhaps, some of us feel it's unlikely that Gate City Vineyard could really grow and be a healthy, multicultural church that reflects the kingdom of God. Would people in this area of all colors and cultures want to come and join with us and work together, be side by side, and do God's work hand in hand as brothers and sisters? Is that unlikely? Begin to pray. Pray for God to show up. Pray for God to be at work in this place. Because our God is a God of the unlikely. I have one more thing to say about this. I know there's a few of you who may be sitting here today who are saying, I can believe this for everyone else. I can even believe it for Gates to Vineyard. But I can't believe it for me. Because I'm unlikely. I'm not very good. I don't know that God really loves me. He doesn't, you don't know what I've done. I don't feel like I'm ever measuring up. There's nothing I can do to please God. My life keeps messing up. Nothing ever seems to fall my way. I'm unlikely. And I can't imagine that God could do anything good for me. And I just want to say this word to you, church, today. That God loves the unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. He loves the unlikely. He's yeah. especially caring and comes to the aid of the unlikely. Yeah. He loves the unloved, the uncared for, right. the unsuccessful, yeah. the unattractive, yeah. the insecure, the yeah. fearful, yeah. the ones who no one thinks will ever make anything of their lives. You may be unlikely, God says, but you are mine. Yeah. Yes. You're mine. Yes. You belong to me. Yeah. I make things that are things that are not. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I move when you least expect it. I'm your God. Yeah. Oh, church, we have an unlikely God. Yes. We have an unlikely God, and yet he's at